Hello and welcome to Abuse Isn't What You Think. I'm your host, Jackie Graybill. This episode features the second interview I ever recorded for this podcast and took place in 2021, right after I finished my dissertation for my master's, which was in understanding domestic and sexual violence. You'll notice that the audio quality isn't as good because I hadn't gotten my Blue Yeti Nano for Christmas yet. Please enjoy this interview with my friend and author, Lee Marks. I'm so excited that you agreed to this interview. This is gonna be fun. Mr. Lee Marks, the author of Break the Silence, a support guide for male victims of domestic abuse. Thank you so much. This is the start of a hectic month because we've now finally got our publication date for the book going out into mainstream bookstores. So that's incredible. I know it's going to help so many people. We were on a course together. You're still on the course of the university. <laughs> and every conversation we've had, I've just been floored by your heart and your professionalism and your desire to help men who've been abused because that doesn't get talking points when we're talking about abuse. No. And it seems to be the same sort of conversation wherever we're talking. This weekend, we're on Sky TV talking about male victims for an hour. And we're doing a radio show in Birmingham in a couple of weeks as well. Two hours we're going to be on talking about male victims. Wow. It's moving forward. That's the only thing I can say. The fact that there seems to be more places happy to talk about male victims is a major advantage. That's definitely a move in the right direction. How did you get to this point? I'm sure you didn't start out you know, in your, your late teens and 20s thinking, oh, I want to be an advocate for male victims of abuse. What's your story? It's an interesting story to say the least. <laughs> okay, um, that's a great mystery. <laughs> yeah, I was working as a young person and family support worker for Stonham in Worcestershire. One of my colleagues that worked in the same office, Jack, was the male domestic abuse coordinator for Worcestershire. And he came and spoke to me because they were running a male group program called Rejuvenate, which I thought, okay, you've never really hear of male programs. You never really hear of male victims of domestic abuse either. And I, I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll go along and I'll have a look because I was quite interested to see what it was all about. So it turned up to the first session that he was running, thinking that I'll sit back, not thinking much about it. And he said, look, the best way for you to learn, because he says, what I'm hoping is that you'll get a bit of a passion for this, like I have, and that you'll come on board and work with me. So there'll be the two of us. I was like, yeah, yeah that's cool. Uh, he said, join in. We've got a few activities. This is the first group. And what I want you to do is just to join in because you get more of a feel for joining than you would just sitting there watching. He said, you don't really get much out of it. So I was like, okay. It struck me straight away, listening to the guys as they introduced themselves and some of their stories that they were sharing. It was just like, oh, wow. Because I just didn't expect to hear some of the things that were coming out. And Jack then pulled out what was a gender neutral version of the power and control wheel that had been adapted slightly, more tactics of abuse put on there for men to look at. And he said, okay, what I want you to do is on your own, just take your time because this will be quite hard, quite emotional. I want you to go through here and tick off the ones that you've experienced. And I just sat watching them. And seeing these blokes just ticking one off after the other. And I looked at Jack, I was like, oh my God, what have I walked into here? 
<laughs> and he said, join in. So I thought, all right, <laughs> thinking it was, what's the point? And I started with the children's section because me and my ex-partner, we didn't have children. And this is after we'd separated and I sort of moved on to the emotional abuse and then physical and found myself ticking one after another. And it was like my whole world fell out from under me because it was like, what the hell's going on? I remember it like it was yesterday because he looked at me and he, he mouthed to me, you okay? And all I could manage was to shake my head and then sat and spoke to him for hours afterwards, just talking about my relationship with my ex. And he just, he just shook his head and he said, mate, you were a victim. How did you not see this? I didn't really see it as domestic abuse. I kind of saw it as what was. What's become really interesting is over the years since then, and talking to victims of all genders, that whole thing of not recognizing what it was that I was subjected to is not something that's just limited to male victims. It's something that all victims at some point will go through, not recognizing what it was. So, uh, <laughs> no brainer says that I stayed working with Jack in that role, but I did that for two and a half, three years before the contract became a little bit untenable. So I took a step back from it, but still was involved in domestic abuse because I worked in substance misuse and substance misuse and domestic abuse go hand in hand. But then we saw the documentary abused by my girlfriends. I sat with my wife that I'm with now and watched that and, and found it highly emotional because some of the things that were on there were things that I remember experiencing myself. And it made me very upset to think that men were still suffering this and nothing was changing. And she challenged me. She said, you've got all this experience. What are you going to do about it? I said, what can I do about it? I'm one person. And she said, write down what you know, because what you know could help one other person. So I kind of rose to the challenge and started writing and within, it must've been no more than a month. I was sat looking at a book and it was just, oh my God. <laughs> and that's where it all escalated from. And it's all snowballed since there, uh, you know, everything we're doing, it's just got massive. Wow. That's so inspiring, Lee. And it's amazing that your wife is the total opposite of what your ex-partner was. Your ex-partner was abusive and horrible. And your wife is this incredible support who was like, Hey, you can make a difference in the lives of other people. And you're making a huge difference by telling your story. And what was the feeling when you got done with that book? I didn't know what to think to start with. I was kind of sat there with this book thinking, what do I do with it? At the time I was working as a trainer for a substance service, but in the same office, we had a domestic abuse perpetrator program running. I got to know one of the chaps that was working there, Josh, and it was really bizarre because we known each other for a little while. It turned out that our paths had run parallel for so many years. It was always one step behind me in roles that I worked in. And when I left, he then came into, so he delivered the rejuvenate program. And I remember the first time we spoke about it, he was like, hang on a minute, mate, that was rewritten. Was that you, the Lee Marks that helped rewrite that program? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm meeting you. <laughs> really surreal sort of situation, but. I kind of skirted the subject with him and said, you know, I, I've been trying to write a book. I just wonder whether you might want to have a look at it. So he said, yeah, print it off, bring it to me. I'll have a look. I didn't see him over the weekend, obviously, because the office was closed, but he came back in on Monday and he was just like, mate, I couldn't put it down. He said, the stuff you've got in there is just 
unbelievable. He said, but I need to be brutally honest with you. And I was like, oh God, here we go. He said, there's a couple of stories in there. I think you need to pull out. I said, really? I said, what's that? And he said, cause the people you're talking about are clearly identifiable. Talking about perpetrators, female perpetrators, and they were big name celebrities. And he was like, you've made no money out of this book, Lee. How do you feel about ending up in court being sued for slander? And I was like, yeah, point taken. Can you edit it for me? <laughs> he did. And I asked one of my female colleagues, Amy, who was working in the same project, whether she'd have a look over it. Cause she's got a bit of experience in domestic abuse as well. And she was just blown away by it. And she said, I didn't realize how similar men's experiences are to women's. And we all sort of sat down together and said, yeah, well, what are we going to do with this? So mm. we tried a few publishers to start with, but pretty much the response was, mate, you're talking about male victims. It doesn't sell. And it was like, <laughs> really? So we decided to self-publish on Amazon and it was kind of like, look, do you know what? If we sell one copy, that's one person helped. So we put it on Amazon and just couldn't believe the response. We sold a hundred copies in the first month. We were contacted by a male organization up in the Wirral in Liverpool, who were in the process of setting up their project that they've got there that was set up in memory of a male victim that was killed by his partner initially to support family and children, but has gone on to massive things. And they wanted a bit of input from us in regards to setting up. We met up with them and gave them copies of our book. The book became the backbone for some of what they're doing there. And it just exploded when we got that first month report and it was like, sorry, how many copies have we sold? It was a real surreal moment it's been on and it will be on again approved reading lists at universities it's just mad seeing it on amazon was one thing but when we started exploring publishing opportunities again we thought let's give it another go especially with the domestic abuse bill coming out we got lots of no's we weren't expecting anything and then we got a no from a publisher but then three days later a yes from somebody else that was working there. And they said, you know, this needs to be out. They were like, this is the deal we can offer. Are you interested? It was kind of a no brainer. As soon as they said, here's a deal, I signed it and sent it back. And it's taken a year to get all the final edits and everything else done. And they've done such a fantastic job with it. And as I say, it will hit the mainstream bookstores on the 30th of November. You're not only an Amazon author, you're an author with a publication company. Yeah. And a few people asked me recently, how's it feel to be a writer? And it's that moment you stop there and you think, I am a writer. <laughs> I wrote something. I did a thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. Cause you know, I sort of, I, I branched out a little bit, but it was sort of for my own benefit. I wanted to test my limits on my writing ability. Cause you know, doing something that was nonfiction in terms of the self-help books, one thing. And I thought it's good to go to fiction just for a bit of a test. So I've got a book called The Silent Truth, which is on Amazon. That's been on there for about a year, which is the story of a male victim of domestic abuse again, which has taken lots of people's experiences and put them into this book. But it's part one of a trilogy and part two of the trilogy is based around one of the other characters in the book. And that'll be coming out by Christmas this year before next year, we do the third part, which is based around the perpetrator. And even those have got some massive reviews from people saying, do you know what? This is such a great way to open the door to talk about male victims. Absolutely. And who knows where that might go, your trilogy. 
could be a movie one day. We've been talking to a company that created a play that they produced and went on tour around the UK. And they've also done a radio version of it. And they've sort of muted the idea of scripting the silent truth for their next production. So who knows? <laughs> That's incredible. All from you deciding to sit down and write about your own experience and what you knew. So I'm thinking about the power control wheel because I have never seen one that is gender neutral. How would you explain the power control wheel first? And then I'm just so curious, how is it different to be a gender neutral version? And like the things that you saw that you had gone through that you hadn't seen in the normal power and control wheel? A lot of them were very similar. Obviously the original Duluth power and control wheel was devised in the Minnesota women's project. So it was based around being a women's project and quite rightly so based around male perpetrators of abuse, because, you know, historically, when you talk about victims, perpetrators of domestic abuse, every time you hear the words domestic abuse, you think of male perpetrator, a female victim. So they created this wheel as such, breaking it down into lots of different subsections to try and clearly describe some of the behaviors that women would suffer by the hands of their male perpetrators. I think the main difference is when you're looking at one of the sections on the original is use of male privilege, behaving like king of the castle, things like that. But when it broke it down into the gender neutral version, there were several versions that were created. Certainly using male privilege changed to using gender privilege and certainly Looking at some of the laws that exist within the country, we've had a lot of people say to us now that that doesn't impact it anymore at all. But my experiences of working with families going through family court, it does. The fact that there were laws passed that stated, I believe it was called the tender years doctrine, that between a certain age, if mum was deemed to be of sound mind and body, mum would get custody of the children if they fell within these years. Now, what we've seen is a pattern that seems to still be going on these days, which is quite surprising, bearing in mind that that sort of came about Victorian times, I think the tender years doctrine was. So this is something that really massively needs updating. But with the rest of the power and control wheel, a lot of the stuff was still the same when you look at physical, you're looking at the acts of intimidation, you're looking at biting, you're looking at pinching, you're looking at slapping, you're looking at use of weapons. I'm the first to hands up and say, yep, you're absolutely right. When you're looking at the figures that more women are killed at the hands of their male perpetrators each year, than men are, but for me, one is too many. The big difference lies, and there is lots of evidence around this. There's lots of academic evidence around this as well, that certainly when it comes to physical assaults, there are more male victims where weapons become involved and serious harm through weapons, where it seems to be more brute physical strength when it's a man physically assaulting a woman. So talking about the weapons and the different things that were used was a big difference, especially scolding. Scolding seems to be quite a used tactic, which is shocking. And seeing the results of some of those, it changes you when you see it. There's Scalding, no like being burned or? Hot drinks. Oh, okay. Stuff being I've, thrown at you. Okay. Yeah. I've had men physically show me 
down their chests onto their genital areas where the partner's just come in with a boiling cup and just literally tipped it on them. Iron burns as well. I've seen iron burns, cigarette burns are all quite common. So you got all that side of it. And then obviously the emotional abuse, the name calling, a lot of the blokes used to talk about. Some people think, you know, what harm is that? But you know, being called fat, being called ugly day after day, week after week, year after year, destroying that self-confidence. It has an effect on somebody's mental health. DIY, putting up a shelf. It's an expected thing that a British male should be good at DIY. And that's sort of an age old thing. Men saying, you know, I've, I give it my best shot. It's not straight. But then everybody that comes to the house, a repairman, a family member, a friend, she'll point it out. Say, I can't use that shelf and it makes me feel completely worthless. Mm -hmm. Got the use of children as well. It's never ending, but a lot of the behaviors are very similar to those that the women face. That's so interesting because I feel like coercive control is starting to be more well-known and that has been the focus of a lot of my papers as I've gone through our master's. So the master's is understanding domestic and sexual violence that we both have been going through and Coercive control, it seems like in my studies, and I looked a lot at Evan Stark and his work around coercive control, it almost seems like that's the base of all abuse and perpetrators, no matter who they are, they will go to physical abuse when their other control tactics are not working. So the idea that abuse is just physical, even if you look at the gender lens, abuse is a man hitting a woman with his fist or choking her or whatever. It doesn't take into account the cycle and underlying purpose of it. Would you say that coercive control is something that you've seen in working with male victims a lot? You've hit the nail on the head. Because <laughs> it is. And I think this is where Anybody working or studying in the field of domestic violence or domestic abuse struggles purely for that reason that, you know, up until quite recently, it was called domestic violence. And when people think about domestic violence, it's that incident, it's that hit, it's that assault. But you've got to look at the buildup to it. You've got to look at everything that's going on in the buildup, that coercion that's there, the twisting of what's going on. And after the incident itself, the more coercion and the more controlling that's going on there by laying the blame at the feet of the victim. But if you hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have done this, would I? And some of the things I've heard of to some people have been laughable. One bloke saying to me, he was hit around the head with a toilet seat that his partner had ripped off the toilet and hit him with because he'd forgot to put the seat down. And that was his fault because he hadn't put the seat down. Another bloke was shouted at and berated in front of the neighbors and hit by his wife because he forgot to check the turkey on Christmas day and it was slightly overcooked. Now, when he was referred to the service that I was working with, he was like, Mate, I burned the turkey. I deserved it. And I said, okay, so it's, it's a one-off incident is, or, you know, has there been other things going on? Cause there's got to be something for you to have been referred to us. And we started to explore the relationship and actually this coercion and this controlling behavior had been going on for years and there'd been flashpoint moments, but it was only actually talking to someone that could talk about the cycle of abuse and explain the whole concept of that to him that he went. 
my God, mate, I'm being abused by my wife, aren't I? And it's that sort of penny drop moment that it's difficult when you see it, seeing that emotion and that realization suddenly hitting someone that they've been abused. But it's also a moment of enlightenment because once that pen is dropped, that's when the real work can start on trying to help somebody. Absolutely. And I think even that word abusive, and I don't know how you found this in your work, but it seems like a lot of pop culture wants to label it as toxic. And I feel like toxic doesn't get to it. It's not toxic. It's abusive. <laughs> not even scratch it in the surface. Yeah. All I'll say is never put me in a room with someone that wants to talk to me about toxic masculinity. <laughs> because that's, as my colleagues always put it, that's like lighting the touch paper and running. Everybody that's ever tried to engage me in a conversation about toxic masculinity has been to talk about how toxic masculinity is responsible for domestic abuse towards women. And I'm like, well, hang on a minute, let's flip that on its head a little bit here. Why do you think men struggle to come forward to disclose when they're being abused themselves? Why do you think men struggle to identify the behaviors? Because society sets or has set these set of standards that men should adhere to that whole stiff upper lip. You just get on and you deal with it. And that for me is toxic masculinity. The fact that you're telling men, you've got to hide your emotions. If your partner's abusing you, there's no way you can go to, nobody's going to believe you. Or if you go to the police, they're going to go, what did you do to make her do that? Yeah. Because that's what happens. And that for me is toxic masculinity. That's so good. That's one of the points with Evan Stark that I don't necessarily agree with is he highly genders coercive control and looks at it in the lens of, <laughs> okay, over the years, as things have evolved for women's rights and the legal things have been put in place that they can't abuse as much as they used to. So now they're just doing it in private relationships and it all stems from male privilege over the years and has morphed into looking this way. But for me, there are a lot of holes in that idea. And I'm curious to know why you think women abuse as well. Or do you think it's not a male thing? It's not a female thing. It's just a person thing. It's a person thing. It's massively a person thing. As you'll know, <laughs> my first semester that I had at university, I struggled with because coming from the work that I've been doing and some of the reactions that I've had from very extremist feminists who I now realize are extremist feminists, mm. very much tarnished my view on feminism purely and simply because of some of the reactions that I'd had to some of the work that I was trying to do. And obviously having to sit there and then learn about feminism and recognizing what it is. I'd say today that I would consider myself a feminist because I do agree in equality for women, but I agree in equality for all people. And I think when it comes to domestic abuse, one of the biggest issues that we've got globally is the fact that we're trying to genderize it instead of looking at the behaviors and thinking about, right, these are behaviors we're seeing. It seems everything has to go down that gender, which is such a shame because it means so many victims are not being supported. And so many perpetrators are also slipping through the gaps because it is being genderized in the way that it is. Yeah. And it's really worrying. It's not about 
males do this and females do this. The behaviors are quite similar. I was quite surprised quite recently, actually, there was a BBC news report that Josh actually sent me that I looked at that just took me aback because it was a top female lawyer who works in the field of domestic abuse. And she said, I know the backlash I'm going to get for saying this, but from my perspective and what I see with the domestic abuse victims that approach me, that I talk to of all genders, that actually I would say when it comes to coercive and controlling behavior, the female perpetrators are a lot worse than the males. Really? Uh, which is like a, whoa, hang on a minute. In what way are they worse? Because it's more about the coercive and controlling behavior there. What they were saying was there wasn't as much of the physical. So when you get round to the incidents, part of the cycle of abuse, it was more the shouting and screaming and not so much a physical hit, even though that was still there, but the coercion and that controlling behavior was a lot worse in the build up to an incident and after. Yes. Which. That walking on eggshells feeling is just, oh, that's the worst. I'm sure you know it, but it, it gets back to, if you talk about the idea of equality and talking about feminism, there was a quote that one of our professors mentioned by Mary Wollstonecraft, and she was saying, I don't desire for women to have control over men. We just want agency. I want to be able to have agency in my life. And I feel like that's probably the same for men who are experiencing the abuses. Well, you can speak to that probably better, but we just want agency over our lives. And that's what you don't get with the course of control. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. That's what we're hearing all the time. As an organization, having now branched out, so we're supporting all genders of abuse. And we have the three of us doing it now, two male workers in myself and Josh and Amy, who predominantly works with females, but she does cross over and work with the men and vice versa. You know, I've worked with a few females as well already. And it's the same thing being said, the same things over and over being said about the buildup and just feeling like I have no say. I feel like I have no control over anything in my life whatsoever. I'm told what I can and can't do. Absolutely. And as far as the leaving element of it, because abusers set it up so it is so difficult to leave and then they hoover you back. Do you feel like you've seen that that's pretty much the same with male and female victims? Like male victims try to leave and they can't? Is that a little different? It is similar. I'd say one of the biggest differences, and this is certainly apparent when we're looking at the men we support that have children, is the fact that they don't feel able to leave if there are children there because they don't have the financial means to be able to go and take their children with them from the abusive relationship. And they've also been threatened. This is an ongoing thing that we hear from everyone in this situation where their perpetrator has said to them, that's fine. If you want to go, go. And he said to the children, did you know daddy wants to leave us? And then making it very clear to them as well, that if you go. I will get custody of the children and I will make your life living hell to be able to see those children. And we're seeing it at the moment. I'm dealing with three cases myself where I'm supporting gentlemen through the court process who are just bouncing ideas off me. And one of those chaps has been back to court nine times now after having a decision by the judge, which has then been breached by his ex-partner and he's had to go back to court. 
And actually, I've been along this time and said, this is just beyond a joke. This is nine times now. If you'd given custody to dad, are you telling me you wouldn't have changed something by now, but you're just going to allow this person to continue to breach the ruling that you state and do nothing about it, but still nothing's been done. I feel like custody and courts, both in the US and the UK, are set up not for the protection of the child. That should be it. That should be the main concern, the health and well-being of the child. But it feels like that's not taken into account. That's not the highest order. No. And I think the biggest difficulty, you know, it doesn't matter which country you're in either when you're talking about it. And I would say in the majority of cases, it will be the perpetrator that starts it and starts throwing the, this happened, this abuse happened. And as soon as that first bit goes there. Even though they say, we don't take into account, this is about the children. This isn't about the parents. As soon as someone has said domestic abuse, the other person, the other parent is already tarnished before they've had any chance to say anything. I know there's a lot of cases where victims have raised it. I certainly follow an organization called the court said in the UK and they're campaigning because there's a lot of cases that they deal with where. There was pretty horrific domestic abuse towards mum. And the court has said, this isn't about yours and their relationship. This is about the relationship with the children. But you're not understanding when it comes to it, if you're giving someone who is physically abusive in such a way contact with that poor victim, that is going to impact what happens to the children still. And it should not be happening. It should absolutely not. And that can affect the children's health as well, because then they can be abused. They don't realize if you abuse your partner, there's a likelihood that the children are being abused as well. It doesn't just stay with that person. Yeah. I mean, when you're looking at child protection, domestic abuse becomes a child protection concern in its own right. And there's a lot of disagreement on it, but my personal standpoint is that if you are a child living in a home where there's domestic abuse, you are suffering emotional abuse, full stop. Because you may not see it, but you feel it, you hear it, you hear the stuff going on, you see the repercussions. Yes. And it affects you emotionally too. There was a video that we talked about ACEs, adverse child experiences. And if you have grown up in an environment where there's been abuse, you are negatively affected. For the rest of your life. So it's a misnomer that can be. And there's some quite prominent people in our field of domestic abuse that would try to say ACEs is rubbish. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, yeah, there are some that, that say, actually, no, this is rubbish. Yeah. But it's not. But what you've also got to look at when you're looking at ACEs is that bigger picture, because if there is that support network behind the scenes, that can counteract some of those effects. Yes. But if you're not, and you're completely isolated and there's nothing else there, and you are a child stuck in that relationship with perpetrator and victim, and there's no other support there, it can. If you look at ACEs, I've already said, growing up in a home where there was domestic abuse and child abuse, certainly when I first looked at it, I think I scored about six ACEs. And certainly if you're taking it bang on saying, right, someone that uh, suffers six ACEs is going to have these adverse effects. Mm -hmm. I probably shouldn't be sat here doing what I'm doing now, but I had good support behind the scenes. My grandparents, my dad, 
my mum, bless her, she didn't realize half the stuff that was going on and still to this day feels guilty for what we were put through. And I'm, I'm 40 odd years old now and she still feels guilty for some of the stuff that we were dragged through. Yeah. There's so many complex emotional dynamics at play with all of that. In my abusive marriage, I didn't have children, similar to how you didn't have children with your ex. So was able to make more of a clean cut than I would have been able to otherwise. But I can't imagine going through all of that. I was going to ask you, when you're talking about the courts and how when they hear somebody say domestic abuse, how the other party is automatically the bad person right off the bat, even if it's a perpetrator who starts it. Do you feel like training for judges, for the people that are around this? How important do you feel like that is? Massively, but it depends who it is providing the training. Certainly where I am in Worcestershire years and years ago, there was an absolute fantastic gentleman called Martin Lakeman who provided training for courts around domestic abuse. And it was a gender neutral approach to it and making it very clear that males and females can perpetrate abuse and that parental alienation is a type of abuse. Whether people are happy to accept that or not, children are used as a weapon and people are alienated from their children. I don't always agree with some of the means that some of these men's rights organizations go through, but when we're sharing stories of dads that have committed suicide and left letters for people that are in their life that make it very clear that I've done this because the one thing I had left in my life that meant anything to me, my children have been kept from me and they've taken their lives. It needs to be addressed. I was going to ask you about parental alienation. So I'm glad that you brought it up because I know there's a lot of frustration with women who work with women who have been abused with men's rights groups. The idea that perpetrators use parental alienation as a theory to get the children away from the victim as far as custody. Have you seen that at all? Just playing devil's advocate a little bit? Because I, I was really curious what your take is. Not in the way that we do here. We've either been very lucky or we have quite a robust skill set in being able to assess and work with the men that we've worked with. Because every single man that's come to us looking for advice isn't looking for custody. They're not looking for custody. They're looking for just contact with their children where they can see their children and spend time with their children without someone watching over their shoulder all the time. That's all they're looking for. And I'm going to use the word privileged to have been in court a few times with some of the men that are going through this process. As someone that understands it and understands domestic abuse, I've been sat with my head in my hands in court sometimes just beggar in disbelief at some of the stuff I was seeing. One bloke who was desperate to see his children had been in the contact center. There was no issues with the contact center and they were on about moving it out into the community. So they needed somebody to supervise those sessions in the community to start with. He brought forward five people from the local community, people that he knew, who the children knew, who the mum knew, all respected members of the community and she wouldn't accept any of them. When they said, if you won't accept any of them, who are you willing to accept? She said, there is one person I trust enough to supervise this contact. And that is my ex-partner's parents. Her ex-partner's parents were both in their eighties and live in the South of Cornwall. So for them to supervise contact, they were having to drive for three and a half hours 
supervise contact and then travel back. Of course, as soon as the court, cause we were in court and they said, can we have a phone number or we'll phone them? And I'm sat there thinking, what the heck is going on here? They went and phoned them. Of course, his parents said, hey, yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. Cause they wanted him to have contact with his children because they knew how important it was. But the very first time due to their age, they hit a patch of ill health. So they couldn't come and facilitate contact stopped. And when it went back to court, she said, I stopped contact because it was your supervisee that was supposed to look after the contact that failed to make that take place. And I'm protecting my children because they cannot be let down for this contact. And the judge in that case said, I completely agree with what you're saying. And I was just like, are you serious? Can you not see what is going on here? I've almost been held in contempt of court for speaking out because as you've probably seen when we've been on the course, if I've got something to say, I'll say it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it uh, needs to be said. I mean, with that level of manipulation, because it's not about the kids. No, it's not. I've been in court where people didn't know who I was because I kept it on the quiet. Obviously, we're not going to go out there and advertise, hi, I'm the male domestic abuse coordinator. And I turned up at court the one time and the mum was there. And as soon as I walked through the door to the court waiting area, she started glaring at us and I felt really uncomfortable. And she had a gentleman with her who dad's whispered in my ear, that's the chap she was having an affair with. And he stood up when we came in, folded his arms and was just looking at me without blinking. And I was like, all right, this is quite scary. So I said to her, I said, look, there's another waiting area. Let's go and wait down there. So we moved down there. When we went into court, we went in first and we're sat there thinking, what's going on? And then the court usher came in, whispered something to the lady that was doing the typing. And she said, we just need to make you aware that there is a non-molestation order against dad, which is a very interesting story on how that came about in itself. And she is feeling really uptight and really scared about coming into court today. And can her friend sit in with her? And the, the judges went, absolutely, absolutely. That's fine. The doors open and in came this watch crying, shaking, wouldn't look at us. The complete opposite of what was going on in the waiting area. I'm kind of looking between her and my client and it just came out. It was like verbal diarrhea. I just went, I'm sorry. Are you really going to believe this crap? And then they were like, eh, excuse me, you cannot talk. You are here as a Mackenzie friend. Any more from you will hold you in contender. But I said, oh, no, I'm sorry. This is a complete travesty of justice to stop my client seeing his children. And they went, who are you? And I was like, Great. In road. So I said, my name's Lee Marks. I'm the male domestic abuse coordinator for the area. Uh, I've been working with the father for some time now. And they went, oh, well, what's your take on this situation? I said, that's not my place to say. What I will ask though is all areas of the courts have cameras, don't they? And they were like, yes, they do. I said, right, before we get started, can you go back and can you look at the cameras in the waiting area for the last three hours and you will see a completely different person? And they went and had a look. And then when they came back in, they said, right, before we start, you can stop this behavior now. We've seen a lot of you were like in the waiting area, and we're not going to tolerate you trying to manipulate justice in this way. <laughs> Nick was nice contact with his children at the end of that day. So for me, that was a result. Not that it continued because again, it was stopped. But a win in the moment. And if you hadn't had 
the clout of your position, they wouldn't even have listened to you, even no. though you would have experienced the exact same thing. Yes, this is an issue all around with family courts, because obviously one of the big things with family courts is in these cases, they'll commission CAFCAS to do a report. Don't get me wrong. I've had some really good CAF officers when I've been out for meetings with clients I've been working with when they've been going out, but I've also had some really negative experiences. I had one case where dad knew that he was being abused, but didn't know the children were being abused. And when he found out that the children were being abused and they were going to take the children away, he gave up his job. He gave up his whole life to take his children to a new flat and to care for his children. The first time he met a cab officer that was coming out to do a report on him, he opened the door, said, hello. She walked in, turned around without seeing me and said, I'm here to take your children off you. How do you feel about that? And then realized that I would sat there and I made a complaint about that officer as well, who subsequently lost their job. But then in the same breath, a dad told a cuff officer that he was being subjected to domestic abuse. And the cuff officer said, I've met mum, And in my opinion, she is not a perpetrator of abuse. And I said, and can I ask? what your professional training is to be able to make that judgment to which they took their glasses off, smiled at me and said, my dear boy, I don't need training. I've got 20 years of experience. It's just beyond belief. Do you know what I mean? It just makes you sick. Oh my gosh. And tell me again, what Kevcast stands for. <sighs> Do you remember? Do you remember? Off the top of my head. It's <laughs> so children and families safeguarding. So basically they have to go out and do the assessments on dad, on mum, on the children, find out the children's wishes okay. and everything. Like, like social services in the US, basically, like a child welfare worker. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, it's it's not just the courts that they need specialist training it, I put my neck on the line by saying it here as well. There's a massive rollout in domestic abuse training within the police force over here. I applauded the work that was done in training it, but when I actually asked one of the people that was delivering it, I said, can I ask when you train in the police around domestic abuse, is this done in a gender neutral way? So as all victims are addressed, the response I got was we do mention all victims. We will say that men can be victims as well. But we also explain that predominantly the majority of victims are female. So therefore we will be talking about female victim, male perpetrator during the course, which again, when you're talking about the first person someone can go to is the police by training it out in this way, you're alienating a massive proportion of, of victims and the way the questions asked isn't geared towards all victims of abuse. Anyway, when we come up with the stats that you've got in the UK. I myself have had a conversation with the Office of National Statistics that do those surveys that pull out those stats. And some of the questions that are asked are questions along the lines of, has your partner ever done anything that made you feel like you needed to go to the police? Well, if you think about male victims' experiences of domestic abuse, when they've gone to the police and all the stuff that we've read academic wise. And that you've read when you put it into a Google search to find out there's not many positive experiences. So actually the answer to that question is a big no. 
But yeah. as an organization, we say it slightly differently. We say to people, and this is everybody, this is our bulk standard question. Has your partner ever portrayed any behavior that made you feel a bit uncomfortable? If so, let's talk about that. And it opens the doors massively. And it's that approach that needs to be rolled out to get a real understanding of actually what domestic abuse is like in this country, because I think we're not even scratching the surface with the statistics. Do you feel like that applies to the course of control legislation? And I'm really curious about this because my dissertation was on the course of control legislation in the UK. And is it possible for the US to replicate that? One of the interesting things that I came across was at a course of control legislation conference, Evan Stark was speaking and he said something like 98% of the perpetrators that are arrested, charged, whatever, under the course of control legislation are men. So I'm curious about your take on the course of control legislation, because that seems a little lopsided from what you're saying is actually happening. But if you think about any legislation that's been put in place, if the people that have to deal with these complaints under that legislation are being trained male perpetrator, female victim, that is why you'll end up with that slanted figure. The other thing to look at as well, and I know this happens because we've had experiences of it. I myself have witnessed a female perpetrator behaving in the way that I had been told. That female perpetrator made a false allegation against my client. And the first thing that happened once she made that allegation is she was referred to the local women's service who just took it on face value because there is no screening process that's used. And then she got all this support. But when he went to the police to make his complaint about the behaviors he was facing, it was kind of, what do you want us to do? Well, follow the law. You know, if this was the other way around, what would you do? There aren't many agencies where they can go, okay, we hear what you're saying. Let's make a referral for you. It stops there and then. That's why a lot of men won't talk about what's happening to them. The government will talk about trying to set up a new 24-hour helpline. Absolutely fantastic. A 24-hour helpline for men, that would be fantastic. But then what? They phone up and get that little bit of advice on the phone, but then what? Where do they go from there? Where do they get the practical support that they need? It's still not there. It's quite frustrating. <laughs> it's sometimes you know, you're banging your head against a brick wall with it. And it's something that I don't foresee is going to change in the short term. I agree wholeheartedly with the feminist movement and what happened. It had to happen. It had to happen 100% without a shadow of a doubt, because the way that women was being treated was absolutely disgusting. But I think unfortunately what's happened, and from my perspective, a lot of the people that we're hearing from now are these extremist feminists. And instead of bringing it to a level where we have equality, it's kept going. Because now what we're hearing and what we hear all the time is domestic abuse is a gendered crime. It is not. Domestic abuse is a crime that can happen to anybody. And by saying it is a gendered crime, you can't even call, for me, you can't even call men a minority victim because as estimated to be just shy of a million in the UK each year, how is that ever a minority victim? What has happened is, and I'm sorry to say domestic abuse as an industry has become about funding. 
And you have to portray it in a certain way to be able to get that funding. There's been all sorts of statements that have been made that have been put all over social media about some of the big organizations that deal with it that have actually said, you know what? We know male victims of abuse exist. We know it's a massive problem. But as an organization, we're never going to come out and say that because it'll affect our revenue stream. When it becomes about money and not the victims, mm -hmm. that's when we've got to stop and say, hang on a minute, what is going on here? Yes. Do you feel like that financial component ends up pitting advocates against each other, like advocates for male victims, advocates for female victims, and then they're pitted against each other instead of just being like, hey, let's work together to help all victims. Let's put it this way. It did feel like that at one point and it became quite, I hate the word toxic, but it felt toxic having people trying to support men, people trying to support women, because it just felt as though we were trying to put this message, look, there are male victims. This is what's happening. And then in the next breath, you got some getting up saying domestic abuse is a gendered crime. It affects women a lot worse than it affects men. And basically everything we've just said is rubbish. But me and Josh took a leap of faith about a year ago and decided that we wanted to try something. And we'd sat at an event all day that had been talking about male perpetrators all day. And it was like, oh. So when we first got up on stage, I, I walked up the steps, looked back behind me, mopped my brow. And then Josh, when you were right, I said, yeah, mate, I had two achievements today and I've achieved one. He said, what's that? I said, I got up on stage with that decking it and landed on my face. So that got us a bit of a chuckle and we talked about our male victims and, uh, he knew I was going to do it. I looked at Josh and I went, cause we had a slide come up that said the future. I went, I'm going to do it. And he was like, don't do it. I was like, I'm going to do it. And he said, don't do it. I said, no, mate, I'm doing it. And he turned around, he turned his back to the audience with his microphone and said, oh my God, he's going to do it. And I stood at the front of the stage and I said, you know, one thing that I'll pick my language here, I use much more colorful language, but I said, you know, what annoys me the most. And that's when you get an event like this and you get female services going, female victim, it's all, we need this money. And then you've got male victims saying, we need money for our services. And then what you've got is two sides effectively fighting each other for a pot of money. I said, at the end of the day, that really annoys me beyond belief. And that's just putting it mildly. <laughs> you can probably <laughs> imagine what I actually said when I was there. And Josh hadn't realized I was going to talk so strongly about it. And he went, I don't believe you just said that. But what we noticed is a lot of the people that were in the convention were frontline workers. And they sat there and they nodded in agreement. And the conversations that we had afterwards were like, do you know what? We wish we could work with people like you more often, but we're told from above it, a management level, what we can and can't do. Local services here, there's a lot more now where they're trying to commission combined services. So supporting male and female, which, you know, for me is a good thing. I don't think it should be split up. Two examples. One, I got contacted myself to ask if I was interested in the role for the male side of it, because they said, we need someone with experience that will come and front that male service and shape it into what it's going to be. And I was quite interested in that. But then they said, the issue is though, what you'll have to buy into and what you'll have to put across in all the work you do is our organizational standpoint that domestic abuse is a gender crime and I refused to do that. So it didn't progress any further than that. 
The other example I've got is in my own area here, when the female service first took the contract that had the male and the female contract, both together, they outsourced the male service to a housing association. So it was one man within a housing association, and he was managed by the older people services manager. How is that a specialist? It's just unbelievable. Wow. So all the support they were getting was just temporary housing. They were lucky because the chap that was in the role, I don't know if he still is now, is the bloke that took over in the full-time role from me. And he had so much experience that he would be able to carry that. My concern was, where does he get his support? Exactly. So talking about support and self-care, what have you done over these years to heal yourself having come out of that abusive relationship? And I know it is cathartic to work with victims and to feel like you're making a difference and you're more than a survivor at that point or a victim, you're an overcomer. But what have you found works for you in the self-care arena? I've been out of that relationship for some time now. I've been with my partner that I'm with now for 10 years and it still does get upsetting from time to time because I find myself even now, certain things may get said or certain things may get done. And I find myself going to my default conditioned behavior that I learned to go to when I was in the abusive relationship. And I kick myself afterwards because I'll sit there and think, I didn't need to do that. Why have I behaved in that way? She's not that person. And it can become quite distressing at times to behave in that way. I'm being more open now when I talk about my own experiences and there's times where I'll be affected in that way now that I will sit and I'll have a cry in my car and it's just my way of trying to deal with it because I don't want my children to see that side. I don't want my children to know that I've been affected in the way that I had from my previous relationship, but I do a lot of talking to Josh. <laughs> Josh is an absolute godsend. I don't know where I'd be without him. He's a fully qualified independent domestic violence advisor as well. So he did all the training to be able to do the advice stuff that he does. He's a very good listener. He's absolutely amazing at what he does. And one of the things that he encouraged me a lot to do is to take time for myself, relaxation, bit of mindfulness. He really encourages me with my writing because he said in some of my writing that I do include some of my own personal experiences and actually getting that out there, being able to take it from here and just start letting it go makes a massive difference. I'd like to say one day I'd fully recover, but I think domestic abuse changes you as a person. And I think that aspects of the way that it changes you, that you can't go back to how you are. And what you have to do is you're recreating the best possible you, you can from that situation that you've been in. And it's about having the right people around you that are going to support that process. Over 11 years since I came out of that relationship and it's still an ongoing process. I'm still learning about me. I'm still learning about who I am. I had to become a whole new person. I'm not the person I used to be. Absolutely. That was so beautifully put. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you are a writer and it shows in your speaking. You're so very eloquent. <laughs> I am now. That used to be one of my downfalls. When I first wrote Break the Silence, Josh laughed when he handed it back and he said, do you know what? 
There is one way to describe this book and that's unapologetically you. You can just hear you saying the words that are in it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the best way to be because you're unique as an author in your voice and in your experience. And nobody else could have written that book the way you wrote it, which I'm sure has a lot to do with its impact. I think so. I think so. A lot of the people that have taken the original format of it when we put it on Amazon came back and said that the one thing that sets this apart from any other book is the fact that it's in plain English. We don't try using big terminology. We say it how it is and keep it very basic, simple, and easy to understand. Well, you're making such a difference. Oh, I'm so inspired by you, Lee. So many things. Wait for the next one. The next project is going to be even <laughs> bigger because it's all of us from the organization. One of the big feedbacks that we got when we first put out Break the Silence was, oh, here we are, another man writing about men, which annoyed me a little bit because, you know, the feedback that we were getting from the majority of people, male and female, was, wow, this is amazing. We now see how similar the behaviors are that people face. But we had a lot of people challenging us saying, you need to write a book about women. If you want to consider yourself a professional within the domestic abuse field, you need to level that playing field and you need to write a book for women. We kind of sat with that and me and Josh just sat looking at the screen at the comments that were there and I couldn't believe it. And I was like, I I can't address this at this moment because I was quite angry about it. And then when we brought Amy on board, we revisited it and I said, look, this has to be addressed in some way. And she went, this is just, it's rubbish. She went, abuse is abuse, not a gendered issue. And that is the way we as an organization stand. And that's the way that we need to continue to argue the case on domestic abuse. And it was like the penny dropped because there is nothing out there that will take male victims, female victims, and LGBT victims and look at the abuse suffered by all in one place. So we are currently underway on writing abuse is abuse, not a gendered issue. And that is exactly what it does. I focus on the men. Amy focuses on the females. Josh is a specialist in the area of LGBT. And we're all taking the same chapter titles, putting all the information together, and then literally pulling the whole thing together and hope to publish it through our publisher because they've asked for the first refusals on it after Break the Silence is done. But with everything else that's going on at the moment, it's a little bit manic trying to make it happen. I bet it is. That's incredible. Well, I can see a future possibly where that book is required reading in universities as well. Because like you said, there's nothing that has all of that together. It's mostly about how women are abused. So your book is groundbreaking. Well, I have already been told, and it's a shame actually, that you've now finished the master's course because I have been told that now we have a release date. It is being added to the approved reading list for that master's course. I feel so chipped. (laughs) I'll have to read it on my own. I will read it on my own. (laughs) Not for credit. This has been amazing to chat with you. And I'm wondering if I can do something that might seem a little silly to close this out. So I don't know if I ever told you this, but I have acting as a background and have developed characters for my inner critic and my inner cheerleader. And my inner cheerleader is named Peach Angelica. And she would like to talk to you for a minute. This may seem silly, but can she talk to you? 
Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Oh my goodness, Lee, you are so inspiring. I just, I can't even, you have taken all the crap that you've been through and you have just transformed that into something that is movement changing. It's like you are the start of this movement and it is so exciting to see all of you that you put into it and just how much you're touching lives. You are going to touch the lives of so many men. I mean, you already have, but I just see it's exploding. Incredible. You are so well-spoken and down to earth and you are kind and empathetic. And I know that when those men encounter you, that's what they get. That's what they have to hold on to. And the way you support those men is just incredible. I know you make the world of difference to their experiences. And that's so incredible. You're amazing. Thank I, you for who you are, for what you're doing in the world. I'm just so excited. We always said that if we could help one person, that's it, mission accomplished. But we know we've already done so much more. And the UK is just our starting point. We have. Well, come over to the US for sure. It, the US needs what uh, your whole, the whole world does. What I'm going to say is our publisher has got publishing houses on four continents and America is one of them. What? If success here, watch this space. We will be on your doorstep next. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> That's so incredible. Thank you so much, Lee, for taking the time. This has been such an incredible interview. Oh my gosh. I just, I'm, ah, you're just so engaging and the work you're doing is inspiring. Thank you. Thank you for having us. As soon as you asked, it was a no brainer for me. Take that very first day when we did our first classroom based session and you were sat on my table. You know, listening to what you were saying, you inspired me. And the fact that you would come out and you would talk about your experiences and stuff, you massively inspired me. And I've always said to the guys that I work when I told them that I was doing this with you today, I, they said, how do you describe Jackie? I said, I describe Jackie as a female me. <laughs> Oh, that's such a compliment. I, th I think you are. I think the way you come out and the way you talk about something you're quite clearly passionate about and the way it's affected you and the fact you can come out and do what you do, it's people like you that inspire me to keep going. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. That is such an honor. I really appreciate that. And I'm so looking forward to reading your books and seeing where this all goes. It's going to be amazing. It is. Uh, thank you so much, Lee. This has been incredible. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. Lastly, would you like to say hi to Tyrion, my puppy? Go on then. I love dogs. <laughs> <laughs> come here. Come here. I don't know if I ever told you this, but now he's trained to be my assistance dog. He's my PTSD assistance dog. Oh, wow. Oh. Hi to Uncle Lee. Say hello. Oh, I, could, I could see why it would be a PTSD assistance dog. <laughs> like my sister's dog. Uh, yeah, I think every abuse victim could use a PTSD assistance dog. That's my personal thought about it. We've got a golden retriever. I had a three-legged staffy who was um, my best friend when I first came out of my abusive relationship, who had to go and live with my brother because I had to move into a flat to start with. But luckily it was just around the corner, but we've only had our golden retriever for two years, but absolutely, oh, I, 
advocate for having a dog because even when you're having a bad day, she knows and she comes and curls up next to you and that's it. It's like, yeah, the world is already a better place. <laughs> it makes such a huge difference. He's a mini golden doodle as well. So he definitely has that golden retriever heart. Yeah. Here, come here. Come here, you. <laughs> oh, thank you again, Lee. I really appreciate this and look forward to seeing what's coming next. And please let me know when the interview with Sky TV comes out. It's channel 733. It's one of the Muslim channels, which is a massive honor for um, one of the ethnic channels. Ask a normal white British organization to come and talk. I think there was a little bit of hesitation from some people that we know when we said what channel it was, because I know in some countries, governments have banned the channel because they say there's links between them and Iran, but I've had some good conversations with the promoter with the presenter. And I said, look, for one thing straight away, if we were talking about what you're talking about with the extremist size of the religion, we wouldn't have a female presenter. Yeah. It just wouldn't happen. So I've said to the guys that I'm working with, look, we're all going to get equal opportunity to speak, but if it starts getting a little bit edgy and they're asking questions, we don't want to answer. I want you two guys just to hide behind me. Let me speak. And if it gets too much, I will end the interview plain and simple because we won't get dragged into anything we don't want to. Yep. That's smart. Putting your boundaries up right ahead of time. Yeah. yeah. I'm more looking forward to doing the radio show in two weeks time up in Birmingham because we thought we might get 20 minutes and he went, no, mate, we have a two hour session. And what we want you to do is you and Josh just to come and sit in this studio and we're just going to talk. He said, you know. It's going to be organic. It's going to be how it comes. If we run out of things to talk about, I can play a song. We plan a few more things. I said, mate, you've got no idea. <laughs> You're like, yes, this is the best. <laughs> I literally, today is my first day out of isolation from having COVID. Oh, wow. I've been really ill. Within two days of being diagnosed with COVID, I was diagnosed with pneumonia as well. So I'm still off work on antibiotics <laughs> still trying to clear up and it's just got so much going on because i booked tuesday off next week for annual leave because our organization has been selected by the criminology degree at stafford university uh, as a project they want to work with. So the criminology students are going to be doing a project with us for four months in devising because we did our own petition to try and get a minister for men in the UK, but the government petition sites are seriously woeful and lacking. They allow you 200 words and that doesn't scratch the surface. So we have to go and present our project to them. And what we're asking them to do is to explore all areas of inequality that men are suffering within the UK as it stands at the moment. So looking at domestic abuse, housing, the law, loads of different areas, and then they'll put together all the research they find into sort of a format for us to devise the petition. And they're going to put together a strategy for getting the petition out there for us. That's amazing. It's like your own personal interns or something. <laughs> I was talking to Claire at our last uni session and she went, how are you going to fit all this in? And you're masking as well. And I went, you are not getting rid of me that easily. <laughs> <laughs> 
well, just don't do what I did and leave most of your dissertation to the last 19 days <laughs> or the last three weeks. I may already be doing that. <laughs> it's, it's the way I work. I've got to do the literature review next, and we should have already started working on it, but I've blocked booked three weeks in December and said to Josh and Amy, you are going to have to run, break the silence unless something important comes up for three weeks while I do that review. Cause the only way I can do it with a full-time job, a full-time organization <laughs> and a master's to try, try to fit my wife and children in somewhere. <laughs> they can fit in the pockets, right? <laughs> They're great. I have to be very boundaried with my time and I do make every effort. I think having COVID, so one of the main good things of it because I haven't been able to work, even though I felt rubbish and because they've all had it as well, we've been in the same room. So we've actually spent so much time together over the last week. It's been nice to just stop. Your body needed it. It was like, okay, but we're going to get COVID so you can stop just for a minute. <laughs> we avoided it for so long. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, but. I just keep looking at it and saying, look, I, I see how I've reacted to it and having the pneumonia as well. If I hadn't have had my vaccines, I'm not even sure I'd be sat here now. Oh, well, I'm so, so glad that you're feeling better with it. I wish you continued recovery and that you don't, you don't experience long COVID too much because you've got too much to do. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lee. I appreciate it. Well, no problem. Excellent. And we're starting to do some because we have done some Facebook lives, dipping our toe into doing podcasts now. So when we do start them up, I'll be in touch. And if you want to come on, you come on. I would love that. Thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. I'll speak to you soon. <laughs> Sounds good. Bye. Yeah.